0: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast.
0: Right, Vanessa Frake-Harris, welcome to the show. We are live, we are recording, we are live and kicking. How the hell are you?
1: I'm good, Stu. Thanks very much for inviting me to uh, the British Murders podcast. I'm uh, happy to be here and happy to chat.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on. So I managed to find a copy of your book. I was very cheeky when I messaged you. I tried to get myself a free little copy, but it did get published a couple of years ago. I found it on Amazon Prime Reading, actually. Did you know it's part of the Prime membership now that you can get a a copy of that? Just If you're a member of Prime, you can read that on your Kindle.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you very much. I might put that on my social media for anybody who's interested.
0: It's worth doing. I don't know if that's a recent thing Prime have been doing. You can get certain books for for free, but you're paying for Prime, so it's not hundred percent free but uh, uh well i'm, I'm pleased
1: you haven't let yorkshire downs down <laughs> by uh, getting a freebie so.
0: obviously that's fine so i've not finished it admittedly but i am a fair way through it and i am really enjoying it to confirm it's called the governor and the subtitle yeah. there the unbelievable true story of my life inside britain's most notorious prisons let's rewind a little bit and start from the start because it's the start you began in the prison service. Now, my maths here is where I'm getting this figure from, but I got 1986. Am I right? Yeah, 12th of May
1: 1986 was my first day at uh, Holloway Prison. Yeah.
0: Okay. So before that then, how did you get into that? Because it's not your everyday kind of job. Is it a career <laughs> counsellor at school? What do you want to be? You want to work in a prison. How did that come about?
1: um well it's it's a bit of a, a long-winded story and I'll try and make it as brief as I possibly can but um I originally wanted to join the forces I wanted to join the Rens. I wanted to be in the navy sail the seas etc cetera, etc cetera. and um on the 7th of the 7th 77 I went for my interview passed it um and then uh, I found out that I'd be shore based and that like at that time women weren't allowed on on ships so that put me completely off because i didn't want to be shore-based i didn't want to do some mundane job in an office um so uh, i decided well my next step was agriculture um i love animals i love being outside um and uh, so that's what i did for probably well For four or five years, went to agricultural college, got an HND in um, agriculture, specialized in dairying, milked cows for a couple of years. Had my own relief milking business where I milked cows for um, farmers that were on leave or sick or the herdsmen. uh, They were waiting for a new one or or any any number of reasons. And that's what I did. And I, I really enjoyed it. Went around different farms, met different people um and um that was all fine um but i could see in the future there was really kind of nowhere for that to go i wasn't gonna you know get on in life with that um and then uh milk quotas were brought in by the uh european commission um which basically meant that um farmers were penalized if they produced too much milk whereas before they'd been encouraged to make as much milk as possible um, so the farmers saw a drop in their wage packet and therefore I saw a drop in mine. Um, and, uh, so after that, I, th- I, th- I thought, well, what's plan B? And, um, I was in London one weekend and I saw on a, a tube advert, uh, a, a sort of picture of a general kitchener said, your prison service needs you. And you two can make a difference. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure I could do that job. So I applied. But at the same time, I also applied for the Met Police because I quite fancied working for the Met. So um, that took about a year from the time that I applied to the actual time I was given a start date, which was, as you said, the 12th of May, 86. Um, and um, then the training was you did four, four weeks at um, a chosen establishment. Mine was Holloway. Um, and then you did nine, 10 weeks up at the training school. Mine was in rugby. There was also one in Wakefield. Um, and, um, so that's what I did. And then halfway I was at, in my training halfway up at rugby and, uh, I got a letter from the Met police saying, congratulations, you've been accepted to the Met. Uh, you can start on this date at Hendon. And, um, by that time I, th- I was halfway through, I thought, oh, well, well, We'll see where this one goes, and I've always got that to fall back on. And the rest, they say, is uh, is history. It's
0: interesting, that isn't it? And kind of Sod's Law that you get into one because you don't hear from the other, and then when you're halfway yeah. through <laughs> the first one, you it's hear, kind of it.
1: one of those sliding door moments, isn't it? If, if yeah. what what would have happened had it been the other way around? But you know, we'll never know now. So
0: let's explore that a little bit, though. Let's play you know, not devil's advocate, that's the wrong word. Let's just fantasize a little bit. Let's say you had joined the Met Police. Yeah. In a hypothetical world, where do you think that would have taken you? Because you're very ambitious, no nonsense, you don't take any shit. You probably would have risen through the ranks even, because people like Jackie Martin, for example, very strong woman, she rose through the ranks at a time when it wasn't common for that to happen. Do you think that would have happened with yourself? Would you have progressed as much as you did within the prison system?
1: Um, I'd like to have thought so. Um, like you say, I'm I'm the only reason I really kind of started with the whole going up the ladder was because um we had a really crap senior officer um when I was at Holloway and um made some really bad and dangerous decisions. And I thought, geez, I can do I'm sure I can do better than that. And that's why I went for promotion and that sort of started the ball rolling. And then a lot of it was being in the right place at the right time, but as you say, like you know, I I once I got my teeth into something, I really kind of I didn't excel at school. Uh, I hated school with a passion. I got dreadfully bullied. Um, I always felt that there was something a little bit different about me, and and school just wasn't the right environment for me. But something that I enjoy and I love, I can excel at. School just weren't one of those things. But you know that that that's how it was but i would like to think that i would have gone as far as i could have in the met police i i certainly think that you know women in 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 any kind of job like that had hoops to jump through far far more than men jackie Moulton, a good friend of mine is is one of them you know she put up with a a, a dreadful lot of uh, misogyny etc um in the uh in the Met police in the early in the sort of middle seventies. And um, you know, sometimes you look at it and you think, well, actually has has much changed. But, you know, the same could have been said for the prison
0: service. Yeah, I noticed you tweeted something when I was sort of stalking your profile as it were, <laughs> recently about the stuff Jackie went through and how it's still prevalent today. It's just it's just bizarre to me that so many decades later stuff like that does kind of exist. Probably a conversation. Firstly, to- for a different time. But what I want to come back to is something you touched upon. Is you mentioned that the senior officer there was making some quite dangerous decisions. Can yeah. you remember any of those decisions? What sort of thing are we talking about?
1: Um, well, we're talking like um prisoners that were were known violence, um, who were unlocked with very little supervision and allowed to assault other prison prisoners and and officers, you know, some some sort of Unable to say no to prisoners, which, you know, I always found quite easy for some reason. But, you know, once you start saying yes all the time, you're, you're getting yourself into a very sticky wicket situation. Um, and those those kind of situations can have ramifications for everybody else, you know, coming along afterwards.
0: You know, given the time you had at school was quite difficult. You, you mentioned that you got mm-hmm. bullied there. I'm going yeah. out on a, on a limb here, but do you think, that played any role in you wanting to pursue a career in the prison service or the Met Police? Because the people that are locked up are, by definition, bullies, right? They've done something wrong for the most part. Some people are in there when it's a minor offense. But do you think your school life played any part in that, or am I overthinking it?
1: I think, I think to a bit, Stu, I think you're actually kind of overthinking it a, a bit. If anything, you know i wanted to make a difference i wanted to make a difference to to somebody's life i mean a lot of times you know with with people who are convicted of crime you know it's there for the grace of god go i and if you can help i always thought if you know if i can help one person turn their life around whatever that may be and you say you know i'm quite strict well yeah i was fair though you know i always get ensured prisoners got everything that they were entitled to nothing more nothing less Um, you know, and, um, I think, I think, I don't think, you know, bully, bullying in prison is, is quite prevalent anyways. Um, and anything that you can do to keep prisoners safe, to keep staff safe, to keep visitors safe is, is in my book is a, is a good thing. Um, you know, it's not all about locking people up being a, being a prison officer. You know, that is like a very small part of your job. You know, you can wear, you know, 20 different hats in a day, you know, from counsellor to confident to uh, helper outer to, you know, nurse to uh, any number of things rather than just unlocking and locking a door.
0: How does that differ based on what you expected? So, for example, in any job, we have a contract, right? And it says what your responsibilities are. In that role, it sounds like a lot of your responsibilities are unwritten, so informal responsibilities. How far removed from what you were actually expecting was the role, especially when you first started?
1: Oh, completely. I mean, nobody ever told me I'd see a dead body. Nobody ever told me that I'd have to deal with people with really severe mental health issues, Um, you know, who who were locked up in prison because there was nowhere else for them to to be detained and, and protect the public, you know? Um, but these are things that, that happen, you know, not just to me, but to, to prison staff on a, on a daily basis, you know, you're expected to deal with quite horrendous self-harm issues, suicides, um, violence, you know, I think I was there two days and, um, one of uh, the officers I work with got quite badly assaulted like in front of me. And I, you know, your instinct is, is to protect your colleagues and you just like jump in like all guns blazing. Some she got um, hit, sounds funny, but she got hit um, quite severely on the back of the head with a broom. Um, and it literally just split her, it split her skull open, you know, there was like Clara everywhere. And this, this was like, I'd only been there two or three days. You know, I mean, I, I didn't know what to do, only that I knew that I would jump on this prisoner to to stop her, like, carrying on beating the, the crap out of this, this officer. So, you know, although they try and prepare you for it and they, like, teach you interpersonal skills, you know, how to deal with somebody screaming at you, shouting in your face, somebody um, who won't talk at all, trying to sort of cajole them along, trying to get some somebody to do something that they don't want to do, you know, all these sorts of things. Actually, when it comes to the nitty gritty, a lot of it, you have to learn on the hoof and you learn by experience and you learn by, by watching other staff and, and watching their reactions and how they deal with situations. And at the end of the day, you kind of find your own niche. Um, Mm. as to how you deal with it and on what level you communicate with prisoners you know you Mm. may may communicate with prisoners totally differently to how I do but that may work for you but it wouldn't work for me you know you have to find your own level Um, which can be difficult
0: what's the turnover rate like you know for staff because I imagine like you've had a real baptism of fire there and some people won't have the minerals i guess for better sake of a term to get on with the job some people would choose the flight rather than fight mode rather than jump on the colleague they might stay Mm. back and think you know what this job isn't for me is there a high level of turnover for staff or is it generally the people that apply typically have that mentality
1: um i think nowadays it's a very high level turnover of staff you know they can't actually recruit um enough staff to fill the gaps because people are leaving. When I joined, I joined um, in an era where it was seen as a career for life. You know, Mm. I had no intention of doing anything else with my life apart from the prison service. Never, I can honestly say, hand on my heart, never actually crossed my mind once to leave the job. And I saw some pretty awful things, but it actually never, never, ever crossed my mind. But unfortunately, you know, with with how things are and how they've sort of sucked the money out of our out of our prison system now, um, you know, a manager in McDonald's gets paid more than than a, a new member as a prison officer um, who has to deal with violence on a daily basis. So you know, now people look at it; young people look at it as you know a stepping stone. So you mm-hmm. might get graduates coming out of university staying one or two years and then moving on to something else. And um, that's not good for the service because they need experienced staff and they need consistency of experienced staff.
0: Sounds like a vicious circle, really. They, they need the staff <laughs> that are experienced, but there's not the funding there. so they But they have to get someone in. So they get someone in who's yeah. inexperienced, doesn't have what it takes. They leave, repeat the cycle. So you spent 16 years at Holloway. And I did. You met some pretty notorious inmates in there. I'd like you to tell me the story. And it's only a short story, but it's so strange. And I know you've spoken about it in the media. But the one about meeting Mara Hindley for the first time, can you tell me that one?
1: Um, okay. Well, I was I was um a relatively new officer, maybe maybe in a year. Um, and um I was detailed to take some prisoners from Holloway to Cookham Wood as part of um an escort. Because that's what we did. Holloway was sort of a, a hub prison. So prisoners came in, were convicted, given a sentence and then sort of dispersed around the country to various other prisons. So my job um, that day was to escort, I, don't know, I think we did four or five prisoners from Holloway to Cook and Wood, myself and two other officers. Um, because I was the most junior, I got sat at the back on the, we used to have these, um, vans called pixie we used to call them pixie vans i don't know why but if you if you were junior you got shoved to the back and you were on the wheel arch and it was the most uncomfortable position to be in there was there was like springs sticking out everywhere um anyway so we um cuffed the prisoners up i was sat at the back um one officer was sat in the middle and one at the front and the girls were fine they knew that they were going off to cook and wood um to start their sentences Everything was fine. Got to Cook and Woods. And, you know, it's it's um it's kind of a a done thing, you know, when you have visiting staff to your establishment, you offer them a drinks, um, make sure that, you know, they're okay if they want want like a bathroom break or anything. Um so the the um the senior officer who met us in receptions at Cook and Woods shouted out Myra like that. And um, everybody sort of like just raised their eyebrows and she says to us, like, Would you like a cup of tea? So we were all yeah parched, so we said, "Yeah, absolutely thanks anyways this this little old lady came shuffling out in sort of like old slippers and a a sort of greeny brown cardigan with holes in the elbows and sort of a few threads here and there, and the buttonholes had been clearly worn for a long time because the buttonholes had sort of stretched and and she had sort of like um just sort of a like a denim skirt on brown mousy short hair." Oh, honestly, I wouldn't have uh, looked twice at her if I'd have seen her in the street. And um, she says, oh, Myra, get these get these staff uh, a cup of tea, see what they want. So she sort of went round to us all and uh, she says, uh, she got to me and she says, would you like a cup of tea? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Two sugars. Uh, she said, right, I'll be right back. Um, and then the officer next to me, who who was uh, in charge of the escort, said to me, you know who that was, do And I went, Myra. And she said, yeah, but Myra, who? I was like, I've no idea. And she said, that's Myra Hindley. And I was like, yeah, all right. But you know, whenever anybody ever thinks of Myra Hindley, they think of, you know, the, the bleach blonde, um, piercing eyes, you know, that photo of her. Well, honestly, she looked absolutely nothing like that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have noticed that. So she was clearly working um in the receptions area um where the staff were. Um and making making drinks and and that's quite normal for for prisoners to get jobs around the establishment. And um I would imagine she got receptions because it was a, a small area, not much going on, a lot of staff, and she could be like kept an eye on, so she wasn't mm-hmm. sort of like out in the the rest of the population. Um, anyways, she came back with a tray, three cups of tea on it. I said, here's yours. I said, thanks very much. Uh she says, Is there anything else i can get you? I was like, no, that's fine. And I drank the tea. That was it. Um, but people like to make I I know um it's because it's Myra Hindley, but people like to make a lot out of it. I never actually thought twice about it. Absolutely, what she what she did, you know, she deserved to be locked up for the rest of her life. Um, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, but prisoners like her, um, and other prisoners that I've come across who are quite high profile, to me, they were always a prisoner. You know, they were never, I never gave them anything or looked at them anything different to any other prisoner. And, um, you know, I think it's important that that people realise that they may be sort of high profile outside of jail, but actually inside of jail, they're nobody. You know they're they're next to nothing, and that's how that's how it is. I don't I don't sit here and think oh you know I know um, I went on Good Morning Britain and Alison Hammond says to me what you actually drank the cup of tea and I was like well yeah I was thirsty you know <laughs> she was she was doing a job you know I like any uh, prisoner she could have spat in it yeah of course she could but so could anybody else who makes you a cup of tea you know that that's just one of the things.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's the question most of the people listening are probably thinking. Like, As soon as you find out who she is, the last thing you're going to do is drink that tea, right? But as you say, once she enters those prison walls, she's just prisoner number X, Y, Z, or whatever. I did wonder, though, because seeing someone like that appearing normal, for better use of a word, knowing what they've done on the outside, granted they're on the inside and she's an old woman at that point, does that make it you might not think about it like we do but does that make it more terrifying that they can just appear so normal given what they've done
1: um I, I i tell you i tell you what but when you see i mean myra hindley absolutely what she did was unforgivable um and a lot of what she did didn't come out a lot of it was still like kept in court dossiers but there were other prisoners equally as vile, equally as heinous crimes as she committed. Um, and if you let things like that get to you, you'd never be able to do your job. My, I looked at my job as my job was um, to make sure that they were safe, to make sure staff was safe, to make sure that, um, you know, we protected the public by keeping the likes of Myra Hindley et al., in jail behind those walls my job wasn't to judge them because they'd already been judged by their peers by our courts and by our justice system so you know i i i think if you i mean yes in certain cases you do have to know what prisoners are in for with high profiles well of course you could only have to open a newspaper and you can see what they're in for but but it's important that if you're working with people like that those high profile prisoners who've done dreadful dreadful things that that you don't latch on to that and let that become the focus because if you did you're going to let your professionalism down because because you wouldn't be able to to be civil you wouldn't be able to you know let me think how to how to put this that doesn't sound like you know I'm some soft touch because I can assure you I'm not but I don't want I wouldn't want um to let anything um, get in the way of treating people prisoners decently, regardless of what they've done, you know, I don't believe in uh, going in and beating prisoners up. Um, I don't believe in in um, withdrawing anything that they're entitled to for no reason. Um, I don't. I don't advocate any of that. Um, but what I do advocate is is prisoners giving, getting what they're entitled to um, and working with them to try and assist them to, A, realise what they've done, B, address their crimes, and C, have empathy for the victims um, and the victims' families of those crimes. So to me, um, Myra Hindley could have been Joe Smith, wouldn't have made any difference, you know. Whoever it was that bought me that cup of tea, the media made it so that it was Myra Hindley, mm-hmm.
0: you know. Yeah, I've does that, that make
1: sense?
0: Yeah, totally. because whenever I've researched you, any interviews you've done, your career is absolutely fantastic. But the thing they've latched on to get clicks for that article is the is that cup of tea story with Myra. Yeah, and I, and I think yeah, it's an interesting story, but it's such a minor part of your career. It almost kind of oh is she the yeah. governor that, that met Myra kind of thing and it's like it's just so much more than that I've got a two-part question for you the first one I think I know the I, answer to the first part I, is what is what's your opinion on capital punishment I think I know the answer to that based on what you've just said the second one is do you believe in rehabilitation and if so can that be achieved for everyone or are the limits so for people like Myra Probably not wise, given what she did. I'm wondering what the limit is with that. If you do think rehabilitation is possible,
1: okay. Uh, capital punishment. I always used to say, yeah, I believe in it absolutely. I would quite happily do death watch on somebody. It wouldn't bother me in the slightest. Somebody like um Myra Hindley, Ian Huntley, you know, wouldn't. I wouldn't bat an eyelid. Absolutely, because I think there are some things that. Um, go beyond humanity. And um, you know, like I said, I'm no soft touch. Um but, and I have to put the butt in there. As I've got older, maybe I've mellowed a little bit more. Um I, I still believe in capital punishment, but not to the extent I used to when I was younger. And I think that is probably maybe I have mellowed a bit. Maybe after nearly 30 years the other side, maybe, maybe I have. Um, I, I don't. I don't necessarily think that the justice system in this country has it right in 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 what we what we dish out um, as punishment. You know, the punishment. People need to remember that the punishment to any prisoner is is the taking away of their liberty. That's their punishment um and keeping them locked up that's to protect the public so is that enough i mean people go mad when they see you know prisoners with playstations or with tvs and, and but those sorts of things they're not a right they're a privilege and like all privileges you know they can be taken away but you if you're working with somebody this sort of leads on to the second part of the question if you're working with somebody And trying to rehabilitate them because part of the prison service statement is to help people lead law abiding um, and useful lives upon release. If you're working with somebody, not necessarily um, an all time lifer like Huntley West, um, Myra Hindley, um, but people who have committed um, crime, And who have been given a set sentence and will eventually be released. If you're working with those, you have to give them a carrot and a stick. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. If they want to engage with the reoffending, what's it, the reoffending sort of um, bus and get on board, then that's great. But some prisoners don't you know, and you can't make, um, but like I said earlier, you know, if, if you've helped one prisoner to turn their life about and to um, be released and become a useful part of society, well, then that's a good thing. Reoffending in this country is one of the worst in Europe. We lock up more prisoners in this country than any of the, the prisons in Europe. So why is that? A lot of prisons in uh, prisoners in this country are locked up for non-violent offences. That is a bugbear of mine because that 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 is clogging up our prisons with people who should be out in the community saying sorry for you know driving driving while drunk or if they haven't obviously if they haven't if they've killed somebody that's a whole different thing, but um, you know shoplifting. You know when I was at Holloway, we had a prisoner come in was a woman was sentenced to six weeks for stealing a British rail sandwich personally I think that was very brave of her but you know was that was that justice was that was that a good use of our funds our taxes to lock somebody up for six weeks for nicking a sandwich come on so I think and then of course you've got people who um have mental health issues who shouldn't be in prison but you know what do we do with them where do we put them? There are no such things as mental institutions anymore. The the whole ethos now is, you know, it's care in the community. Unfortunately, the community doesn't care. So these are all things that, as a society, I think we need to think about. Um, we could do much better with reducing reoffending in this country, much, much better. But, of course, prisons aren't a vote win- winner. Not by any stretch of it. Nobody's going to vote for somebody who says I'm going to plough all our money into prisons and re- mm. reducing reoffending. You know that's that's just not going to happen. Certainly not in my lifetime. Um, and um, and but people forget. You know every prisoner place is around fifty grand a year. That's what our taxes are going on to keep people who really shouldn't be in prison in prison. So I think. As a society, we need to have a good hard look at the justice system in this country, and I think it's it's it certainly needs um some major changes. but like I said, it's not a vote winner, so it'd be a very brave politician that stands up and says, "Well, I'm going to take this on because every single time we get a new government, regardless of which size and we get side, we all um a new prisons minister. Things change, so usually it's something they bring in something we did ten years ago. It didn't work then, and it probably won't work now. So you get you just get this revolving door of of policies that that um, don't work. Every single one of them thinks they've invented the wheel, um, but they haven't because we've usually done it before, and it still it still doesn't work. Um, and really, the only in the only thing that prisons need is is an injection of cash. And, um, you know, that's, I don't know, with the cost of living crisis now, are people going to stomach that for committing crime and and putting our cash into jails? I I hardly think so.
0: Mm, Absolutely. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. We'll just talk a little bit about aftercare. So let's say I got sent to prison. I got a 10-year sentence. Mm -hmm. I was a good boy. I got out in five.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: On my... What do you call it when you... Is it release day, right? I was going to say freedom day.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. On on the release day, I walk out into the yard. I've got my belongings and I walk out into the street. I'm a free man again. What's the aftercare like for me? Because my life has been... Inside a prison for five years. So, if I had loans, they're in arrears, you know, I've got marks on my credit score, my job's gone, my life's gone. What's the aftercare like for me? Or am I just expected to sort it out myself? Because if not, I imagine that's no. why a lot of the reoffending happens.
1: um Well, yes, it, to a point. But there are lots of charities that work within prisons, um, like uh, St. Mungo's, um, various, um, the Citizens' Advice. Um, various charities, homeless charities um, that work quite closely with prisons and come into prisons. And um, there is, there are specific courses that prisoners can do when they've served like long sentences like that, um, that prisoners can apply for and do that help them to deal with all of that. So they have got somewhere to go. A lot of them will be on licence, so they will have... Um, terms and conditions to adhere to so it'd be like um no drinking alcohol no taking drugs reporting to a probation officer Um, a lot of them will have have, um have got jobs already lined up because if you've got a 10-year sentence and you've been a good boy chances are you'll be at an open jail Um, Mm -hmm. so hopefully you would have got a job in the relative community um, I used to um, run a prison called Latchmere House, which was in uh, southwest London. Um, and that um, was an open jail. We had 205 prisoners there. And out of that 205, about 199 went out every day to work and came back in the evening. Um, so it was it was um, completely um, focused on reducing reoffending. Um, but because it only had 205 places, um, they, the head office decided to close it because it wasn't viable. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we did all sorts of work there um, with um, offenders, with charities, with um, making sure prisoners on release had, had somewhere to live, had somewhere to work, had um, employers that understood the conditions of their licence you know, all sorts of things. We used to go out and we used to do checks on them um, to make sure that if they were working at, I don't know, the hairdressers down the road, that's exactly where they were, you know, things like that. Uh, but again, you know, they're expensive to run. Um, and, um, you know, we wouldn't expect somebody just to be walk out the gate after a long sentence with with nothing. You know, you do get a discharge grant, you get a rail warrant, depending on where you're going, you get. Um, all those sorts of questions that you've asked me should have been sorted out prior to your release. Okay. The difficulty comes when um when they're not or whether they're discharged to say a hostel and then they walk out the gate and then they don't go to the hostel. You know they go somewhere else or um they have mental health issues and they're supposed to take their medication that is given to them to take with them, and they don't um which happened you know i think um there was something in the in the papers the other day about a, a prisoner who was a, a schizophrenic who didn't take his medication was released out on um on license and uh, unfortunately um went and stabbed several people um and with a couple of them fatally um which you know you never want to read about um because that that is not how prisons um, should work. Um, and There has to be a link between the prison and the community for uh, those prisoners that are released to be managed. And it is a big thing. There's a, there's a big thing, a, a multi, multidisciplinary um, thing called MAPA, which um, sort of covers police, probation, prisons, um, healthcare, you know the whole the whole sort of circle to manage prisoners on release that's
0: interesting before we go on to wormwood scrubs i just mm-hmm. want you to i read this story about you were present when rose west was informed that fred had <laughs> took his own life what's that story
1: yes well i i used to i was the senior officer in charge of the seg now rose west was was at holloway for um about 3 months on and off i think yeah i think it was about 3 months prior to her trial her trial was at winchester crown but there's no female jail down down at that area so uh we kept her at holloway for 3 months um prior to her trial and um obviously because um she is who she is and for her safety and others safety she was kept down in the segregation unit um which is also used as a punishment uh, wing. so anybody who um, fails to comply with prison rules um, can can be taken to the segregation unit where they're segregated from the rest of the population. Um, and that also includes those who are who are um, in fear maybe in debt or being bullied or you know they can ask for sort of segregation. So it's it's um, it's a unit, a small unit where um, there are many different sort of um, facets to it. Uh, So we had Rose West down there, and uh, one New Year's, I think it was New Year's Day, um, about five o'clock. I was there, senior officer in charge. The governor came down to me, who was on duty, said. um fred west has we've just heard from winston green that fred west has killed himself uh i need to tell rose i said yeah okay no worries so um i opened the door rose was in her cell knitting she was always knitting um and um although we never quite found out what she was knitting because it was like she just seemed to knit bizarrely but uh anyways so uh we opened the door and uh I said to her, Rose, uh, Governor's here. He's got um, something he needs to speak to you about. And she was like, oh, right, right, yes, yes. And um, Governor said, "Uh, Rose, I'm I'm very sorry to have to tell you that Fred has taken his own life. And she kind of looked like Rose had very thick glasses, and you could see that they were glass, not sort of plastic lenses, because they were almost like the bottoms of milk bottles. They were so Mm -hmm. thick. And... um, I I I said, um, are you all right, Rose? You know, do you need a cup of tea? I doing sort of a care concern with her, and she's like, no, no, I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for letting me know. Well, that was it. Nothing. No emotion. No, no sort of uh, no no emotion. No sort of physically or mentally or you know. And I and I always thought that Rose thought that because Fred was dead, that she thought that then there'd be nothing for her to answer to. And I do believe that Fred thought that as well, which is why he right. killed himself, to to sort of get Rose off the hook. Well, unfortunately for, for Fred, that wasn't the case. And uh, Rose got a whole life sentence um, and well-deserved too. But I always felt that she was very good at, um, like a typical sort of psychopath, very, very good at, um hiding her emotions literally having none um on any subject really she was very sort of what i would call bland um very polite yes no no thank you no no issue at all but it was almost almost like you could see the sort of cogs working in in the brain um which is sort of like um a typical sort of psychopath i think she she clearly thought that she thought she was she was going to be free now, and um, and I think she would have been quite surprised when she got her whole life sentence.
0: Yeah, I bet. Have you read the? I don't know if you read many books about these cases, given that you kind of knew prisoners in these high-profile cases. But there was a book written by May West, one of her daughters, and it was when she was in prison and she was writing letters to her, and it contains the letters that she got back from Rose, and you can just kind of tell that there's. Almost a manipulation level there, playing mm. off as this victim mentality, oh, completely. blaming Fred for everything. It's really it's a disturbing book. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it if you're uh, not into that kind of thing. That's for but sure. But
1: interestingly, Myra tried to do the same. She tried to br- blame uh, Ian Brady for everything. To you know, um, and I think that's um, that's almost a trait with with um, sort of. Serial killers who are in a partnership. I think, you know, you say, like, have I read them? Um, I haven't read that one, but I have read, read a, a couple of um, ones on Rose West. But um, I think, um, I think it's, it's interesting to see that it's always um, a bit like Bonnie and Clyde, you know, that the woman always blames the man. But actually, quite often, the woman is manipulative and psychopathic in her own right. Um, which I was, I always sort of raise a bit of a smile
0: at. Yeah, no, you're right. That's that's what I've come across anyway. The ones I've researched. Let's talk about Wormwood Scrubs then. So you got sort of transferred there out of the blue. Right, yep. it was early 2002, and yep, all of a sudden March. you've yeah March. So you've gone from this female-only prison at Holloway to Wormwood Scrubs, notorious mm-hmm. male violent prisoners in there. What did you feel when you first heard that news? And secondly, how was that adjustment period from one extreme to the other?
1: Um when I first got the news, I was a bit gutted, but then we're mobile grades, and we were always told we were mobile grades, and you know you went where you were told to go. There wasn't really anything to do about it. And you know i i I hadn't specifically wanted to work with women prisoners. It had just sort of happened that way. When I applied for the job, because at that stage there were no cross-sex postings. So men worked at male establishments, females worked at female establishments, and Holloway was so short of um, staff, I was told, don't bother applying to any other female jail, you're going to Holloway, and that would be the end of it. Fair enough. Hmm. So when I when I got the transfer notice to Wormwood Scrubs, I wasn't I wasn't unduly worried that, you know, I was I, I was more concerned about right, well, that's in West London. I knew Roughly where it was. I'd lived in London now for seventeen years or so, um, but I'd never, I'd ne- and I'd, of course I'd seen like the iconic towers on various, you know, cop programs, etc., and the Italian job and all that. Um, so I knew a little bit about it. Um, there, as far as I was concerned, there were worse places I could have been transferred to, like Brixton or Pentonville, which were sort of much, although they were Victorian prisons, were much more run down than one with Scrubs was. Um, and in a way, I quite was looking forward to the challenge. I, I kind of thought, well, you know, you've got to look at these things with a positivity. You know, I can't be doing with people that moan, moan, moan about a job. You know, there's the door. If you don't like jobs so much, go and find another one. So I've never, I've never been, like, one to, like, sort of mess around like that. Um, so I thought, well, we'll see how it goes and look at it as a new chapter. And th- and that's what I did. And the morning I walked in there, um, <laughs> I said to the, the gate staff, hi, senior officer Frake here, um, I'm the new SO starting at Scrubs. And then we're like, who are you? <laughs> we haven't got anything down that we're expecting. I haven't got a clue. You know, <laughs> typical communication or lack of in the prison service. Um, so... Uh, but that was nothing new, I, you know. The left hand often doesn't know what the right's doing in the prison service, unfortunately. Communication skills amongst prisons, not not prison staff, is is pretty poor, really. But um, so, um, you know, I I found my I was told I was going to the lifer wing, two hundred and forty four life sentence prisoners. Um, I won't say I, I was scared. I was more apprehensive. I've never worked with male prisoners um I knew that they would be totally different and I wasn't wrong um and I was very pleasantly surprised um incredibly um pleasantly surprised actually in fact you know if I had my choice again today with my career I'd have have opted for a male jail any any day of the week if I could have um I found men much easier to work with much more A bit like me, really, much more sort of straightforward. There's no sort of grey areas. It's yes or no. You say, no, you can't have that or no, you can't do that. All right, Gov, No worries. Uh, You say that to a woman and she'll go, yeah, but why not? (laughs) It's like, and then you have to go like through reams and reams as to know why you can't do that, have that, whatever. Um, And I found most of them were quite very respectful to the female staff. In fact, several times I had... Um, male prisoners step in when, um, you know, some prisoner was giving me a, a mouthful or or, or something and, start and say, you know, don't speak to the SO like that. Don't speak to the governor like that. You know, several times, um, you know, there's almost that sort of chivalry thing. Um, but um, it was different and um, it was a challenge without a doubt. Um, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And and I can honestly say the saddest day of my life was when I retired from world um, Scrubs. You know, the staff were amazing. The the building was um just sort of Holloway was built in the seventies. Um and um the old Holloway, um where Myra Hindley originally went to was knocked down and this sort of almost like a mental asylum was built in its place in the seventies. It had Sort of blind corridors and dorms, and it was it was much more like a hospital than a than a prison. But the scrubs was what I expected a prison to be. You know, a lot of gates clanging, banging, and uh, netting on the on to stop prisoners falling from the fours down to the ones. And you know what I expected. Um, or saw in my mindset a prison to be, and I was I was delighted actually to be part of it.
0: Now I hate to put you through reliving this story, but I read about an incident with something known as potting.
1: Yeah, which yeah. is a
0: term I'd never heard. And looking at it, I'm glad I had never heard of it. But what happened with that?
1: Um, well, I was. What was I then? I was by then I was a principal officer, so that's up again um and i was still on the lifer wing and um a couple of days previous one of um the life of prisoners um i was chatting to him about something or other and he said uh let's look boss just just watch your back and i was like well what do you mean watch your back he says, i can't say any more than that just be careful watch your back and i was like right okay cheers and um there was a, a specific prisoner on there that, uh, I mean, you're always going to have one or two that, you know, don't toe the line, you know, don't want to conform, have an issue with you, whatever. Um, you know, and never unduly particularly worried me anyways, this particular prisoner, um, I'd said no to him about something. He clearly was unhappy with that. Anyways, one, one evening, um, I was uh, in my office on the on the bottom landing, and an alarm bell w- went off. And as I came out of my office to run to where the alarm was, um, I was running along the corridor. And then next minute, I was just drenched. And uh, straight away, <laughs> you know, you've been potted. Um, and a potting is uh, it's a mixture of feces, urine. They keep it a couple of days, shake it up, put it in a like a plastic bottle, and then just lob it. Um, and uh it's possibly one of the worst, worst things that could probably happen to you. It's done to humiliate you, to, you know, to um uh, to completely sort of I don't know, dehumanize you almost. Um and um I, like I said, I knew straight. It just literally covered me. Um, so um, I shouted to the rest of the staff to bang the wing up. Other Because the alarm had gone off, other staff had come from other wings. And uh, we got the wing locked up. And uh, governor, the duty governor came and he said, um, you need some new uniform. I said, absolutely. And he took me to the uniform store and I got a whole set of uniform and that. Um, and then I went to one of the showers um, at the gym the pei showers went out a shower uh put my uniform on and um went back to the wing and um it took a couple of days but um i went and saw this prisoner who said who said to me watch your back and um i persuaded him to tell me who it, who it was i had a feeling i knew uh, anyways his feet didn't touch the ground he was whisked off to the seg and then he was transferred very far up north um, and uh, you know it's a bit like falling off a horse you've got to you've just got to get back on it as soon as and 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 get on with it these things happen um you know it's it's very unpleasant i won't deny that but um <laughs> somebody from the prison officers association that was uh, our, uni- our union said you can get 2 grand for that you know if if, if you do like the compensation route and i was like I'm not really interested. I sooner I just crack on. I'm not. I'm not bothered about that. But um, you know, he was a good union guy, so I can't knock him for that. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been threatened. I've been assaulted. Uh, Some guy offered who was a a double um, hitman. He he shot two people. um, Threatened to have me shot outside the jail. Told me how easy it was. you know, if you if you took everything that people said, all the threats, et cetera, on board, well, you'd never come out of your house. You know, you've just got to you've just got to deal with it and be able to deal with it and front it out most of the time.
0: Yeah. I get why you'd want to put that in the past and not drag it up through a compensation procedure or whatever no, that would entail. No. Let's pretend, before we move on to your sort of post-prison life, let's pretend it's my first day at Wormwood, okay? You're the governor there. I've done whatever I've done. What can I expect? So it's day one, my sentence has been handed, you're at prison, this is where you're going, I enter the door. Talk me through what happens on that initial stage.
1: Okay, so the first uh, member of staff, well, from the courts to the jail, you'll be taken by um, Securical or one of the private um, escort companies, me, Securical, um, Group 4 is untold of them. And then you'll be rocked up to the jail. You'll open the door and you'll go straight into receptions. The first person you'll see will be the, the officer in charge of receptions and he'll go through your warrant. So every prisoner has a warrant. If you don't have a warrant, you don't come in. We can only hold you in prison um, legally if we have a warrant. So if they've left your warrant at court, unfortunately, you'll be getting back on the van and going back to the court to get the warrant because we legally cannot hold you without that bit of paper. And that bit of paper says your name, your date of birth what you were charged with, what your sentence was if you've been convicted, um, and the date, and it's signed. It's signed by the clerk of the court. Um, And if all of those things match with you, then you'll be allowed in. So it's important that, you know, A, um, that uh, you understand why you're there, that you've committed whatever, and that your sentence is whatever um then you'll be uh go through um to another desk um who will go through various questions about you so your uh, religion your address outside your next of kin uh emergency contacts um because quite often prisoners come in and of course their mobile phones etc have all been taken off them so like i know like my emergency contact i won't have a clue what their what their number was it's a mobile number so obviously like it's important that prisoners are asked that question so that while they're there we can get their mobile out get them to get it out of their mobile and so we can write it down um so that's that that happens there then um you're offered um if you're convicted you have to wear a u- uh, prison uniform so your civilian clothes are taken from you and you're given um uh, prison uniform which is like a grey suit now nowadays yeah um and um make sure that you have the right shoes like hobnail boots things like that are not are not permitted so if you have hobnail boots they'll be coming off and you'll be given like trainers uh, make sure you have enough underwear, um, and um, and then offered a, a hot meal. Um, before you, you will just miss a bit out, but before you're given uh, your your change of clothes, you're given a um, a strip search. So it's top first, put clothes on, then bottoms, uh, and then put clothes on uh, in front of um, two male officers, um, and then uh, you're offered a hot meal. And you go into a waiting room um, and then from that waiting room, a nurse will call you out. You'll see healthcare. Your entire medical history will be gone through, um, including, um, you know, any attempts at suicide, any sort of um, uh, ailments that you need medication for, asthma, whatever, heart complaints, whatever. And then you'll see a GP, uh, the on duty GP, who will also go through um, your health history make sure if you've got any concerns um that they're that they're sorted at that time then from there you'll be taken up to the first night center now the first night center in prisons prisons have worked really hard um over the last sort of decades or a couple of decades or so to improve the first night procedures um, so what they've t- tried to do is is to make it more uh more, or less like a prison cell and more like um uh, a place where um it's not so uh it's not so scary for for first-time prisoners so there you'll be offered a phone call to whoever you want um you'll be offered uh various uh like pin uh pin numbers so you can have your own phone account um, if there's any concerns, if you um, for for you to sh- uh, share a cell with other prisoners, i.e., um, like um, if you're a far right or far left or whatever, and uh, object to whatever sharing a cell with, we wouldn't put you in a cell with with um, I don't know, say you were homophobic, wouldn't put you in a in a cell with with a known um, gay prisoner do you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. it um that sort of thing um and um and that's pretty much your first night procedures in a in a sort of very condensed way the first night center also has cameras um so that they can sit not in toilets but in cells um so that they can monitor first night prisoners because obviously you know if you've just got a 15 year sentence for whatever um, and, and and you know, it can be quite a shock to an individual, regardless of how hard they think they are or how tough they think they are. Um, it can be quite um, a scary place for, for prisoners. So um, that's the first night procedure. The following day, you'll probably move from the first night centre to an induction wing where you'll be inducted on any number of things. So um, you have to have a, a basic level of reading, writing um and maths um and if not then you'll go to an, the education department you can enroll for the gym for work courses for um uh, various things pertaining to each individual prison you know whatever they sort of specialize um and uh, and convicted prisoners are required to work so you can't say i don't want to work because um it, you can't it's not conforming to prison rules if you're convicted um then you must work right. and that's it
0: wow it's interesting i didn't realize there was such an induction process but it makes sense as to why hmm. especially if you know, yeah i
1: mean it's, it's a very vulnerable time, time for mm-hmm. for prisoners
0: yeah so you retired in 2013 yep. you mentioned it was a, a sad day when you made that decision um, yeah. married, your, married your partner Julie in 2014. Yeah, which is lovely. And then you're sort of working now. You're doing a bit of baking, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, from <laughs> working as a governor.
1: I know it's uh, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a turnaround, isn't it? But I've always loved cooking. I've always I, I love cooking. My nan taught me to cook, um, and um, you know, it when I when I first retired. I kind of lost my way a bit. I kind of felt that, you know, for the first couple of weeks, it's weeks, it's like you're on holiday, isn't it? But then it starts to become daily and then and then you kind of lose you almost. It's like, well, what do I do now? You know, I had this really high, high stressful, high profile job dealing with sort of, you know, prime ministers and god knows who else, um, to nothing. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to do something. But I can't just, you know, clean house all day and walk dogs. I, I need to fulfil my life somehow. So I started cooking at home and um, we moved to a place called Saffron Walden in, in Essex. And uh, they had a really nice cafe there. Did all my sorts of things and um, sort of used all sort of local produce. And I thought, oh, I could, I could, I could possibly get a little job there quite fancy that A little part-time job that do me anyways that's exactly what I did um and um I started baking and I, I never I never looked around um and I still bake now um I don't work there anymore once COVID hit and I got furloughed from that and then that closed so mm-hmm. um but in all fairness you know I don't really have that much time these days I'm busy doing doing other things which you know the book has led me down paths that i never thought when i wrote the book i didn't think that you know anybody would be that interested in it but um, how wrong was i um and um you know from that you know i do talks i do um uh I'm filming on uh, friday for for a tv program um I do road, radio broadcasts, I do podcasts. You know, the the list is just endless. Um, and I'm very grateful, very grateful. So it's, it's like completely, you know, turned my life around into something that I never, ever imagined would happen.
0: Cool. Well, as a reminder, that book is called The Governor and it came out in April 2021. Harper Nonfiction, the publisher on there. Vanessa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insight. You. It's fascinating. Could talk for hours about it, I won't lie, but uh, I want to leave some people, you know, the chance to buy your book and read the read the actual stories on there. Where can people find you? Socials, social medias?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Just uh, give me a shout. I'm happy to chat.
0: Cool. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. Thanks again for your time, and I'll see you all next time.